This is Trebuchet Talks, a podcast that increases the range of art through interviews with great contemporary artists you may not have heard of yet. We aim to dig a little deeper and bring you a different snapshot of art in the UK. So yes, we're based in London, but art transcends boundaries, not least of which is the M25. I'm Megan, and I'm going to be guiding you through this podcast for the next 35 minutes or so. So settle down, get ready to hear about some great things we've been doing and some awesome things we've got coming up. In this episode, we have a discussion on up and coming exhibitions, an interview with Professor Bobby Achara from King's College London on the dark sectors of the universe, and a snippet from our next print issue on contemporary surrealism. But first off, how's everyone doing? The big news at the time of recording is self-isolation from the coronavirus. So I've been doing an insane amount of yoga online and pigs are flying because I've started running during my hour-long government-sanctioned exercise. And if you haven't named your sourdough starter and put the results of your many baking activities on Instagram, are you even doing self-isolation right? Which, while nobly born, means that it's a good time to get back into the world of art. Here's an update from our editor. Hello. This is Kailash, the editor of Trebuchet. I'm recording this from Trebuchet Towers in northwest London at the time of lockdown 2020. How are you all doing? So far, everyone at Trebuchet has been well, and we're working on the next print issue, Trebuchet 8, Contemporary Surrealism. It's coming along well, and it's a welcome escape from the general flow of news and statistics. That's becoming increasingly alarming at the moment as the pandemic progresses across the UK. But coming up in the next issue, we'll be talking to Benji Reid about how he's approaching aspects of the surreal in his photographic work, along with a number of other features, reports and critical essays. It's been particularly fun to get into that deeply weird world that goes along with surreal art and looking at how new voices have twisted what some might consider a rather hackneyed and cliched genre. So if challenging your preconceptions of surreal art sounds like something you're into, then you can pre-order a copy from our website. Well, that's it for the update from the print office. So now back to the regular show. Adios for now. In this postcard from a gallery, we have an excerpt from an interview at Charlton Gallery, recorded as part of our research for the next issue of Trebuchet 8, Contemporary Surrealism. We're taking pre-orders from our website. That's www.trebuchet-magazine.com. Links in the show notes. And we're taking orders for £10 instead of the regular postage price of £14 in the UK or £15.50 for worldwide orders, which is usually £19.50. Which is for over 140 pages on contemporary art, luxury printed, hand-reared and lovingly raised, is a thing of beauty, which has been described by Billy Gould, bass player of Faith No More, as standing out in contrast to any other magazine I can think of. In layouts and content, it feels more like a genuine platform of ideas than just a space to sell advertising. This week's postcard comes from Trebuchet's partner, Charlton Gallery. In this issue, we speak to curator and architect Olga Terezova on the theory behind her recent exhibition, Four in Itself, and her thoughts on luminal spaces. Uh, so the show explores the idea of the third spatiality, which was mm-hmm. introduced by Merleau-Ponty in the 20th century. Um, and um, I think that this show is like early stage of my research because it progressed since my first idea about the show came up. So, I mean, the, 
the two there are two rooms effectively joined by a, a shared corridor. Yeah. So you're uh, you've created two gallery spaces as opposed to a collaborative single one. Three, yeah, three so spaces. I built these balls. These balls never existed. Right. Uh, that never existed. So I transformed. Like the idea was that we would play with the space of the gallery, because again we didn't expect so many new people to come, and we thought that yeah. it's going to be mainly those people who have already been here. So it would be like a, some kind of oh, what is this creature inside? But then it appeared that we had like only ten new, well, ten existing like well visitors. Yes. Uh, and then. Yeah, I just tell people like come like come later when we have everything in order and then you can like feel the proper idea of the show. The two works are very different. You've got um, Matilda's work, which is an analogy, I suppose, to a mouth, mm. and then Svetlana's work, which is an analogy to I don't know something cosmic or who knows where it would be. They they sit very interestingly together though. The, the internal and the human and the sort of I wouldn't say anti-human but certainly of a, of a different order or a, a different um, biological presence maybe not even biological yeah. how do you see them sitting together? I would actually call it inhuman inhuman, okay yeah. Um, yeah, so the idea was like again we thought that the gallery has some sort of uh, body like a creature inside of the space itself which affects us and then we thought how can we play on this idea of the creature mm. and so um, well Svetlana I mean she always has these installations uh, which kind of you don't know where you are and you can't really tell uh, what environment is that whereas Matilda uh, she just suggested this idea with like being swollen and like being in the mouth and being like trans transcending from mouth to gut and then appearing somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's how it works out actually. So you're being, being swollen somewhere. Because Matilda is generally very interested in this idea of being swollen and she, she always kept thinking about uh, Pinocchio. Yes. Uh, the, I think it's Disney movie. Uh, like cartoon, uh, when they got swollen by a whale, and uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I really like this idea. Mm. And, um, yeah, I always was interested in that as well. Like, what happens if you get inside of a whale? Um, is there any indications of, of moving the show or taking the elements of this further to other places? I would love to if I, if we had any opportunities of doing that, yeah. or maybe even a larger scale, like to extend this idea. Um, that would be really amazing for sure, because uh, Svetlana she had already these installations in different public places in uh, Portsmouth. Yeah. Uh, I think Portsmouth commissioned um, her to have a couple of installations um but then like existing environment so it, yeah it looks quite interesting yeah i was thinking that maybe it would be great to experiment on like larger scale and maybe outside but depends on the weather as well yeah. and, like yeah because oh matilda also she had so we had the freeze program in october yeah. charlton celebrates freeze and then matilda had huge latex teeth on the um, uh, facade of uh, housing estate, council housing, Oakshot Court. Mm. Um, 
So it's kind of larger scale. So she had these teeth and it, you could enter the car park. So it kind of transforms the idea of normal uh, things. So this work is, is pretty re reminiscent of surrealism in a way. There's lots of surrealistic elements and certainly the viewer as they wander around is often quite lost in, in the environments that are created here. At first I had, uh, I was connecting space, spatial with uh, yeah, psychology, um, mainly in psychoanalysis actually, because I started my research with the notion of uncanny and how spaces cause the uncanny feeling. Um, but then now I switched to phenomenology because it has, so uh, psychoanalysis concentrates on traumatic experiences in the past which haven't been resolved. Mm. And I felt like I'm missing out, um, like the whole spectrum of experiences, not only negative ones, but like feeling a liking emotion, like Kantian uh, sublime. Uh, so that's why it's more about phenomenology in this show, and it's more about conscious, because surrealism it's about dream and unconscious. Mm. Um, so I think it steps away from, uh, yeah, from the unconscious component. You do. I hope so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Do you, um, why have you chosen the intersection of subject and object as your field of practice? I've always been interested in the ways that people get affected or attached to different things and mm -hmm. objects. Um, and then when I started doing architecture, this interest transformed to a relation with spaces. So spaces would be some sort of an object in my case, I guess. Um, and then since I started doing art theory and philosophy, I realized that we are actually not just subjects on our own, but we are objects simultaneously. So it's, it's like in um, like Lacanian uh, story when he was on holiday and he met a fisherman and this fisherman told him like, can you see the can? And the can said, yes, I can see the can. But then the fisherman replied, but the can can't see you. Uh, so it means that we can see objects, but then that means that objects can see us. And you never know what's inside of this object. Mm. So it's like the same thing here. Uh, we can see the gallery space, but then there is something hidden here. It might be a monstrous body or just like some kind of creature which looks at us back. But um, we don't know that. Yeah. Or do we? Well, <laughs> that's what we're trying to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is something uh, in every space and in every uh, reality. So. Yeah, it's just I like the idea that we're not just objects, we're constantly being objects. Hmm. So we, again, it's like a paradox, uh, being a subject and object simultaneously, and I think this is really fascinating. So a striking thing about the exhibition is the use of liminal spaces, the conduit and the corridor behind the two. Was this a, an unintentional find, or was it very intentional to create this undefined space? It was intentional because again my first degree is in architecture so I know how to manipulate the spaces mm -hmm. and um, I, I really wanted to have like this narrow bit because uh, well in my research it comes to this aspect that when you experience some sort of affect by the space uh, there is always some sort of uh, feeling of uncertainty or um, unsettling effect uh, that precedes this feeling, mm -hmm. this experience. So I really, like, I thought that it would be a really strong moment. And then in terms of art practice, this is a very important piece because uh, two very different art practices 
collide there. So you have neat and delicate practice of Matilda, yeah. which transforms into this really, you don't know what's going on there. It's like, it's a very radical contrast between Matilda and Svetlana. And then you just don't know, can I, can I enter, can I not? Is it like, is it like what, what should I do? Yeah. And then uh, I knew that it's going to be striking contrast in terms of like art practice. But then actually when people came over and because I've been here all day, every day, so I yeah. saw the responses. So people, they got really disturbed. Like some people would just like come back and then they say, oh, that's a really nice, but small summer. Like I said, you should go further and you can go further. And then they said like they experienced this really strange feeling of uncanny and like anxiety, like what happens there, like what to expect. So uh, yeah, it was intentional, but I didn't know that it would be so, so, so striking. Fascinating. Further parts of this discussion will appear in the next issue of Trebuchet, Contemporary Surrealism, due out in May 2020, and on the website in due course. Links in the show notes. So without further ado, we have our feature talk from Bobby Achara. Bobby is a theoretical physicist at King's College London and at the ICTP in Trieste, Italy. He's an expert in string theory and was awarded the Institute of Physics Lawrence Bragg Medal in 2018 for projects he's delivered to teach and promote physics in the developing world, with the ultimate aim of developing sustainable physics research in those countries. We were lucky to talk to Bobby at one of our recent events. Links to diagrams and further reading are in the show notes. So I'm going to talk about um, what I'm calling the dark sectors of the universe. So I'm a theoretical physicist, so I study kind of the universe at, um, on all scales, really. Um, so I'll discuss a little bit about what the meaning of darkness is from the perspective of a physicist um, and kind of what fundamental theory, um, for example, superstring theory, which is a framework in, within which I work, says about dark sectors. Um, and then I'll at the end just touch upon I mean well these are just general themes you know so the last theme is uh, do dark sectors exist in our universe and one can interpret that widely but I'm gonna do they yes <laughs> <laughs> clearly <laughs> well not clearly you can't see them right yeah well depending on how you interpret the uh... <clears throat> so what I mean by dark are just, so as a physicist, we talk about physical phenomena and objects matter, and dark objects are essentially, literally, things that we cannot see, okay? And I'm going to spend a couple of, a minute or two just talking about what it means to see. Oh. And uh, since we have artists and philosophers here, um, I thought this might be uh, quite interesting to share this. So this is a diagram. This is a, basically the germ of what physicists call a Feynman diagram. And um, what you see here is a line that represents the passage through time and space of a particle 
which in this case I'm taking to be an electron or a proton. These are quite familiar in some sense to us. We're made of them. And the reason I've chosen these two is because they have electric charge. And this particle here, uh, or this line here, represents the propagation of a photon, which is a particle of light. And like literally, oops, sorry, literally everything that you have ever visualized, experienced visually, is based on this thing, this simple trivalent vertex, okay, hmm. which we, you know, sometimes call a Feynman vertex or just a vertex. And this this thing gets translated. This diagram gets translated into mathematical formulae um, that um, you build up and use to describe physical, like real physical phenomena. And actually, the theory that this is based on, which is called quantum electrodynamics, is the most uh, sophisticated in a sense in terms of the literal meaning of the scientific method um, scientific model that's ever been tested against data so this is the basis of really um, the pinnacle of uh, scientific inquiry yeah um, so the most precise things that have ever ever been measured and compared against the mathematical theory is actually just based on this this simple thing. Why is it so complicated? <laughs> it's not complicated. It's really simple. Because <laughs> when I think, I mean, the, <laughs> it really is very simple. But like then. But you said it was the most sophisticated. So I can use uh, this and then put, you know, to describe, a, for example, uh, to describe any physical process. I need to put these diagrams together. Yeah. You can make any diagram based on, you can just sort of, for example, I could stick one of these on the end of there. I could stick another one of those in there. I could stick another one there. and and those things become very, very complicated, and then to calculate them becomes complicated. Ah, but the, so the complexity comes in the calculation. Yeah, the concept is extremely simple. It's just that. Hmm. And um, that, you know, just to drum the point home, th that basic vertex is responsible for all optical, electrical, magnetic, electromagnetic uh, phenomena. So all electrical devices that have you know, completely changed the way that human beings live and see the world and experience the world are actually, ultimately, the true thing is that, oops, the, the fundamental thing behind them is this. This is the basis of all of those phenomena. Hmm. So for me, this is you know uh, really fundamental. It's monumental. 
Now, there are other forces in the universe beyond electromagnetism. I want to talk about that. Um, so, and there are other particles beyond electrons and protons. And all of that is encapsulated in what's called the standard, what's now known as the standard model of particle physics. So that's the diagram we had before, but now you can add to it other particles like quarks, which are the things that make up protons and neutrons and other particles. And there are other particles that have strange names like W bosons. There are other forces. So beyond the photon, there's a particle called the gluon, which interacts only with the quarks and itself. And that's the basis of um, what's called the strong nuclear force. That this force, this this is the basis of why protons um, exist as stable objects. So a proton to me is not a tiny little particle. It's like a some huge thing. People think of them as tiny little things, but uh, for me, a proton is a very complicated bound state of um, of these quarks and gluons that are bound together because of um, sorry, because of uh, these these interactions that are mediated by this gluon particle. Um, then there are these interactions, so there are additional. Um, analogs of this photon. You see, I'm replacing the photon. I'm talking about using the photon because that's something that we experience every day. Every day we interact, yeah, we, we interact with billions and billions of photons. But there are also these uh, analogs of photons called gluons, Z bosons, W bosons, and also nowadays Higgs bosons. You have been working with uh, the, the efforts and projects to do, discover the Higgs boson. And what, yeah. think, what was your involvement with with that discovery? Well, I yeah, I ran a whole group that uh, uh, contributed to the discovery of this uh, Higgs boson. Um, Is that at CERN? At CERN, yeah. Uh, on, uh, so there are two main experiments at the CERN Large Hadron Collider. One's called CNS, which stands for the Compact Muon Solenoid. Um, and the other one's called ATLAS, which is stands for an A-toroidal LHC apparatus. So I work on ATLAS. Um, and yeah, we had a, a group that uh, worked on on this discovery. Um, Atlas is actually the world's largest in terms of number of people and uh, scope of project um, okay. scientific collaboration on the planet. But but from this, I just wanted you to take home the idea that there can be other types of forces, and we we know they exist, um, and also that in our world, you know, we are made of quarks, electrons, and neutrinos, and uh, all of these particles. There's a lot of structure. Um, even though this diagram is kind of an, maybe an oversimplification, but there is, I want you to understand that there's a lot of structure in what I'll now start referring to as our sector. <laughs> 
meaning the light sector. Light because most of these particles interact with the photon, so we can actually see them if we look at them in the right way. But, um, well, okay, so, um, so these, you know, this is just to emphasize that the different forces, for each different force, there's a different type of photon. Hmm. And, okay, yeah, Kailash has already anticipated this slide, so we've, um, we've discovered the reason that we, we know that this, these pictures are sort of correct is because the particles that are involved in them interact with us and the things that we are made of. Okay. But you know, what if there were, you know, I could I could make one of these diagrams and I can just stick some particles in because all of these, this diagram that I started with corresponds to a mathematical formula okay and I could then and you know the electron and the proton in this diagram is represented by a symbol in the formula and I could say okay what if there were some other particles that were not electrons but some other types of particles and what if there were other types of photons that were not um, the ones that we see but additional I mean new particles Mm. There's nothing stopping me from considering that philosophically, you know. Um, so it makes sense to, to consider such things. So imagine that we have those diagrams, but involving particles which interact solely amongst themselves, but not with electrons and protons, the things that we're used to, that we're used to interacting with. Okay? And does that mean is that what gives them their darkness effectively? Well, if they don't, if they don't interact with the photon, yeah, then we would not be able to, we would never be able to actually see them directly. Okay, so that's essentially what I mean by dark. Yeah. So, let's consider. Is there a comment? <laughs> <laughs> let's consider a dark electron. So just you know, and it something like an electron but it's, it's not the same thing and a dark version of the photon so just another copy but uh, so there's no reason mathematically why we should not consider that and so that so we should consider it and philosophically as well which is more or less the same thing <laughs> will it end the universe or anything um, will it end the universe <laughs> probably not it's not a reasonable question <laughs> at this point. So I want you to hold that thought that there could be additional dark particles out there, okay, additional sectors. And now I want to consider another form of darkness, which is uh, dimensions. So I just want to ask a very simple question. How many dimensions of space are there? Does anyone know? Well, so he had the best answer, um, which is at least. So we only know, 
So in terms of space dimensions, we're used to having three dimensions. I'm a poor art, poor artist. Uh, hopefully this figure shows that this person is experiencing three dimensions of space like we do every day. Okay. But this person has no idea how many dimensions there actually are, but this person knows that there are at least three dimensions. This is, for me, um, extremely significant. How do we know, you know, how many dimensions there are? You know, like this this line looks sort of more or less one-dimensional, but if we were to like zoom in on it. It could have a lot of structure, you know. It could be two-dimensional. It could be higher-dimensional. So, for that reason, we actually only know that there are at least three dimensions of space. Now, for this to be for this to be um, uh, to make sense, you know, these, uh, you know, obviously this the person that was on on that picture. If there was an extra dimension, you know, coming out in some other direction, you can't draw it, unfortunately. Um, if it was big enough, this person would have been able to walk, literally walk into it, or see images from it, or whatever, or feel it, or whatever. So those extra dimensions have to be confined in some way but um, as in this as in this uh, uh, visualization in this particular case if the if this direction around here is small enough compared to the I mean relative to the scale of the observation then uh, you would not know it's there so extra dimensions could actually be here all around us, but um, if they're confined in some way, or if the if the scale of those extra dimensions is small enough, then uh, we we would not be able to know um, that they're there. We haven't seen them yet. Now, the the theories that have developed since that kind of led to the to you know the led to this standard model. So this, this kind of thing was sort of constructed eventually in the 60s, but it's built upon, um, you know, it sort of goes back a long way to uh, Einstein and Dirac, sort of around 105 years ago. Um, the development after sort of Einstein and Dirac, I'm talking about Einstein and Dirac because those guys developed developed um, relativity and put relativity um, in unison with quantum theory, and that kind of led to to this uh, to this model. Um, if the developments since then have led to something called superstring theory, which is our kind of at the moment our best candidate for our best framework for addressing um, these kind of questions in physics. 
and superstring theory actually predicts both lots of dark sectors and extra dimensions together. So um, somehow, you know, this is how I view the world. I'm trying to give you a kind of vision snapshot of like how I yeah view perceive the, perceive the world the unperceivable yeah. um, and I'll now the thing is that what's remarkable about this is that current observations about the universe you know based on satellite experiments different kinds of detectors you know huge telescopes um, that sort of thing point you know, in the direction that most of the matter in the universe and also the energy in the universe is in the form of some kind of dark stuff we don't know what that stuff is we don't know if it's you know if you can describe it with with uh, that type of diagram yet partly because we can't get hold of this stuff but for example you know 80% uh, of the mass of our galaxy and most of the galaxies is not made of electrons and protons and the stuff that we that and the stuff that is luminescent and light mm. it's made of something else and we know that it is because it we can feel its gravitational pull Um, so that's sort of part of a the, that's kind of where we are currently roughly in the in this field trying to understand what this dark matter and dark energy is and kind of the next the coming decades is really you know, if we were able to understand what this stuff is in detail and for example match it to one of those diagrams that would be a huge uh, intellectual breakthrough so with the these kind of extra dimensions that we can't perceive what sort of uh, effect would we be able to perceive to learn more about them you see it you're saying gravitational things so the bending of light that we'd see through telescopes that sort of stuff yeah it's, it, it's actually somehow more it, I mean yeah the, their effects can be gravitational um, so what models of extra dimensions tend to predict are mm. the existence of um, what I would call extra dimensional gravitons. So, okay. so um, I didn't draw it on these on that diagram, but gravity I can gravity is described by these kind of diagrams as well. We believe where instead of a photon or a dark photon, you'd yeah have a graviton okay and the more dimensions you have the more of these gravitons you would have but um, it's unlikely we will ever observe a graviton because gravity is so weak that uh, one cannot conceive of in fact you know one can I was on a bus um, uh, in September in New York traveling from like Long Island 
down to Manhattan with a bunch of physicists. And, yeah. we were, and I started asking people on the bus, is there any way one could detect a graviton? And we were doing like thought experiments. And we concluded by the end of the three hour bus journey that uh, one could never dis even <laughs> discover a graviton. And then later we realized that Friedman Dyson, who, had, who won the Nobel Prize in physics uh, a long, long time ago, actually four diagrams like this um, wrote a paper about that. Thanks you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Get that? Space is a dark place. Our next talk event is on May 15th. It's an online event due to the coronavirus. Tickets are free, but you must RSVP. As always, check the show notes for details. Thanks again for listening to the Trebuchet Magazine podcast. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review on your favourite podcast platform. Perhaps share us on your social media channel of choice or consider becoming a subscriber. Every subscriber gets a shout out in the podcast as well as the great feeling of supporting a truly independent contemporary art voice. If you'd like us to answer a question on the podcast or have a shout out to a creative event you think people should know about, please do let us know via an email to megan at trebuchet.click. Till next time, stay isolated, stay safe.